Welcome to our Sunday School class. We are on Augustine session number nine. Session nine out of what will be ten. Two weeks ago, we looked at some of his views as a teacher. The week before that, we looked at his life as a believer. And now we're zooming in on his work as a pastor. From the time 396 AD up until his death in 430, he was Bishop of Hippo. He doesn't switch jobs every five years. He's not getting scouted out from churches in Rome, you know, the the hot big city and moves on, bigger paycheck. No, he was in Hippo as Bishop for 34 years. Plus, he worked for a few years as assistant. So he was in the ministry for nearly 40 years of his life. This is a guy who didn't even convert to Christianity until he was 32 and then had a long, nearly four-decade ministry at the same church in Hippo. A reminder that he was pastor of Hippo. He's not just pastor of one church. The way that it worked back then, he was pastor of the city and he had assistants and other pastors under him who would work in the the surrounding region. But the way it worked, you didn't have the Baptist Church and the Roman Catholic Church and the Pentecostal Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. You had the church and he was its pastor. That was called the bishop. And then the pastors under him reported to him He was primarily responsible, obviously then, for preaching, for teaching, and overseeing these assistants and other pastors. This was the job description of all bishops. The Bishop of Carthage had the same job. The Bishop of Rome had the same job. And at this time in history, there was no bishop who oversaw all of the other bishops. There was no leader above them that they all directed their gave their authority to and sat under, not even the Bishop of Rome. It is, a historical, it is historically false that all the bishops were under one bishop at this time. That didn't come till the 450s. And Augustine died in the year 430. And so they would keep each other accountable when they would have synods and uh, that's kind of like a gathering of local leaders or greater... Um, Councils, when they would have councils and things like that. However, Augustine was one who rarely ever left Hippo. You imagine you work in Windsor, you live in Windsor, and for the next 40 years of your life, you rarely ever leave Windsor. That sounds like, what, (laughs) today? But back then, we got to take for granted how easy it is to travel today. You wanted to get around back then, you're going on foot, you're going by animal, you're going by boat. Those are your options. And so it is not the most convenient thing in the world to go travel, to make plans and go. It is a long arrangement. We talked about when he was waiting for the boat, he had to wait months for that boat to get to him, to take him back to Africa. It is not an easy feat to travel, but he didn't want to anyway. He got it out of his system when he was going city to city looking for a professional success, wasn't finding it, comes back to Hippo, He found contentment. He didn't care to leave Hippo. He was in church nearly every single day of the week. He was not a a three-day-a-week worker, four-day, almost every single day of the week he was in church. Uh, He did attend provincial synods as representative of his church. So the bishops, so it would be in Carthage. Carthage is the farthest he would ever travel. He would attend synods in Carthage, uh, which is also in North Africa. 
and other bishops of the area would come. He would oversee synods like that and represent his people there. That's as far as he would go. He'd stay in his area in Hippo. He would preach there. He would teach there to the same people, to their children as they grow up, the same families, and then whoever moves to the area, but there wasn't as much movement back then as there is today. The same people, same families, decade after decade. He was their pastor, and they would go and hear him. I think of the strong legacies of certain pastors. It's almost like, wow, I would have loved to sit under R.C. Sproul. I, or let's go back a little bit. I'd have loved to sit under Spurgeon or Calvin. Oh, the blessing that would be to sit under them. But if you were going to them and you heard them three times a week, four times a week, this, once, this church once a week thing is, moder- is historically somewhat new. But uh, if you're going to hear these guys multiple days a week, you can take for granted what you're sitting under, the teaching that you're getting. And so even though he was preaching and teaching almost every day of the week, and we'll get to that in our preaching section down here, uh, it is basically the same families, day after day, week after week, and he would face the same problems that just about every pastor would face. People... The tensions would lapse. There would be noises coming out. He'd have to not get distracted. He'd lose sense of time. The same things that we deal with today, he had to deal with as a pastor back then, too. He was a normal pastor, except he was an extremely gifted one. There was a time in Hippo, and remember, he knows just about all the families there, at least from an acquaintance point of view. There was a local politician, a local official, who was hated by the locals. They, they did not like this guy. And he was going on a stroll one night down the streets of Hippo, and he was lynched. They killed him. And he had this to say the next time he preached. One thing I know, as we all do, there are houses in this city where there is not a single pagan, and there is not a house that has no Christians in it. Indeed, if we look carefully, we shall find that there is not a single house in which Christians do not outnumber pagans. It is therefore obvious that nothing evil could happen if Christians did not want it to happen. If that were done, or, sorry, hidden evil can always occur, of course, but open evil cannot if Christians seek to prevent it. Every man can keep his son or his slave under control. If that were done, we should have far fewer occasions to make us upset. You think about that. If you have more Christians than non-Christians in your city, and he knows them, he's teaching these people, he's saying, almost all of you are Christians. There's no way that, that a politician's being lynched in the city unless Christians are assenting to it, are letting it happen. You would have put a stop to it before it got to that point. And any other open evil that is going on, if you have a Christian city, a Christian society, that wouldn't be happening. I'm getting, everything that we're talking about is going to be getting to this question, how much authority does my pastor have? How much authority does a pastor have over his congregation, over the people, over the city? What authority do they have? Well, for him, he's trying to teach them to love God and love their neighbor, which is based on fulfilling of the law, according to Romans 13. And so if a local politician is being murdered in the streets, something's off. Somebody 
isn't following the instruction even of their pastor, let alone the civil in the civil realm. So that was he said that in one of his sermons, and he was a very famous. He he, he gained in fame and notoriety. People knew Augustine. He was famous in his day, and so a whole bunch of people would come and visit him, almost like a. A celebrity pastor wouldn't be a fair title, but he was well known because he already had some some fame from how good he was at rhetoric, the ability to speak, the ability to present. He was a master. So people knew his name. And given his beliefs, given the impact that he would have, and given the fact that he wouldn't leave Hippo very often, I think we should learn from this that you don't have to be a world traveler, go city to city to city, speak at conferences all around the world, be going to a different country every week. You don't need to be doing that to have a deep and serious impact where you are. You can have an incredible, incredibly deep impact just by staying where the Lord has placed you and pouring water on the seeds which he has put in the ground. That's the impact Augustine had. So, the answer to the first blank here is that he is deeply committed to, I spelled that wrong, deeply committed to his local people. As a pastor, in regards to church life, he is deeply committed to his local people. Now I'm going to move to some of his beliefs about the church. He's going to say something that might make you be a little uncomfortable to start, but then we'll nuance it and qualify it, and maybe you won't be so uncomfortable in the end. The church is the only place where one can find salvation. Salvation can only be found in the church. This is a claim, this is a teaching that the Roman Catholics took from Augustine and have created it as part of their own dogma that there is no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. To Augustine, he said there was no salvation outside the Catholic Church. But when he says Catholic, he is not saying Roman Catholic the way that it would develop in the way that we know it today. What does Catholic mean? Universal. There is no salvation outside the universal church. We'll talk about that for another minute or two. If we, draw, if we peel back the layers, this is because the church has been given the gospel. The church has the scriptures. It is passed on to us. We are the ones who preach the gospel here in the church. This is where you hear it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Where do you hear the word of God? You hear it in the church. You hear it from your pastors and your teachers. It is not often that you'll be strolling along, uh, the, along the riverfront, walking there, and you are going to be hearing the gospel. There are people who go out and do these things, but it is minimally, and it's kind of real, almost luck of the draw if you'll ever hear it. But the gospel is contained in the scriptures. The scriptures are taught in the church. So... He's not saying, hey, come to church and you're saved. Or come and follow this three-step process and you're saved. He's saying, you're only going to get the gospel if you're getting it at church is, the where, is where you're going to be learning about the gospel. Uh, the scriptures are here. The teachers of the word are here. So you're not going to find salvation outside the church. And if you're not coming to church, if you are, oh, I'm Christian or I'm spiritual, but I don't, I don't go to church. 
oh, you would come under discipline from Augustine real quick for that one. But to do that is to fundamentally deny the hearing of the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord is in the church. You want to distance yourself from the church? You are distancing yourself from the word of God. Because the Lord puts his authority into the officers of the church. We're going to talk about that. Into the officers of the church, the pastors, your deacons, elders. He's, he's put his authority into them to teach you the word of God. So to not go to church is, in his mind, to not be a Christian. It's incredibly important. Unless you're unable. Obviously, there's, if you're a shut-in, you know, there are uh, considerations for that. He did not believe that following certain rites made you a Christian, like the sacraments. Just because you take the Lord's Supper doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you got baptized does not mean you are actually a Christian. However, these rites, called sacraments, are part and parcel with being a Christian. If you are a Christian, you will get baptized, you will take the Lord's Supper. But if you just get baptized and take the Lord's Supper, but your heart is far from the Lord, and you don't have saving faith, you're actually eating and drinking what on yourself? Condemnation. Condemnation. Judgment. That's what you're eating and drinking, if your heart is not... Uh, is not, does not have faith before the Lord. You don't have regeneration, the new heart. He had this to say when he was commenting on Psalm 88. Um, it is impossible for anyone to regard God as a merciful father unless he is prepared to honor the church as his mother. And I actually really like that language of thinking about the church. The, the God the Father is... You know, a merciful father. God the son, he is the bridegroom. He's the groom. And what is, what's his relationship to the church? They are, it talks about the union, the marriage between the groom and the bride, the bride being the church. So we're married to Christ. God is our merciful father. It makes a whole lot of sense to me if you keep thinking of this, this family imagery that the church is like our mother, which is married to Christ. And God the Father is the merciful one who oversees all of this. And we don't want to get too deep into all the details of that before it delves into possible Trinitarian problems. But we should be thinking of the church in family terms because we are part of a family. This is supposed to be a family-like relationship that we have. These are brothers and sisters in Christ, not acquaintances in Christ. The scriptures use family terms when it describes us. How would you treat somebody in your own home, a family member in your home, a visiting aunt or uncle, a visiting nephew or niece? You would take care of them, would you not? You would provide all the hospitality that you could. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters to one another. Not cold, not separated, not hands off, but involved. That's what the church looks like. At least that's the principle behind it. I told you about the Donatist controversy. I recognize some of you may not have been there for that one, but there, the Donatist controversy is essentially a split-off church before it was popular to have split-off churches. And one time while he was preaching, Augustine spotted a Donatist bishop in his church. He's in the middle of preaching, you know, watching the audience, and bam, there he is, Donatist bishop. And... <laughs> 
Augustine, he, this guy is fearless. He points at him while he is preaching and he says, it is quite true that this man can get whatever he wants outside the church. He can enjoy the dignity of office. He can receive the sacrament. He can sing hallelujah and answer amen. He can cling to the gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he can hold and preach the faith, but he will not find salvation outside the universal church. That was an actual sermon pointing at a Donatist bishop. You can do all these things, but you are cut off. Because so you're not hearing the word of God. You've split off and done your own thing. You have split off from the delegation of Christ's authority through the pastor. You're not a pastor just because you tell yourself you are one. You're not a bishop just because you felt in a dream that, oh, God's telling me I am one. That's not how it works. You split off because you're upset. Okay, I'm going to hear what's going on. I'm going to hear your grievances, but we're supposed to be family. And if you're cutting yourself off from the family, there's a term for, for someone who is illegitimate and cut off, who isn't part of the family. And it is a more crass word, but you, what do you call an illegitimate son, an illegitimate child? You call it a bastard child, right? One who is not legitimate, not part of it. That's essentially what the Donatists did to themselves. And he was not afraid to say what needed to be said, to preach what needed to be preached. This was about bringing back lost family into the fold, if they are actually family. Or they will go off and be on their own and they won't find salvation outside the church because they're, they're not in tune with the gospel anymore. So I recognize that we don't think this way. This is not something that in modern days we think, wait, people who don't go to church means they can't be saved? We normally think, yeah, I missed church a few times, big deal. Like in Augustine's day, this is a big no-no. This is absolutely unacceptable in his day. We have a very lax view about church. And I think that comes, and I'm using we in the very, very plural sense. I think that comes because we have a very lax view of authority. I'm going to keep talking about authority. Christians come under the authority of their church. And I'm already going to read a verse out of Hebrews chapter 13. If you have your Bible, Hebrews chapter 13. While you're turning there, it is incredibly clear that we are supposed to come under Christ's authority. Right? You become a child of God. You become part of his family. You are under his authority. Christ himself says, the student is not greater than the master. You are my friends if you do what I have told you. How do you know you love him? You will obey what I have commanded. So we are friends of the Lord when we are under his authority. That is our expression of love to him. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, the apostle has this to say. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Who are the leaders being spoken of here? The leaders are those who gave them the word of God. This isn't talking about your MP. This isn't talking about your prime minister. It's not talking about Caesar. This is talking about church leaders. Your pastor, elders, even your deacons, those who speak to you the word of God, we are supposed to remember them, consider their way of life, and imitate their faith. 
Paul is one who often said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you have a godly pastor, if you have godly elders, if you have those who are worthy to be imitated, imitate them. This, that's the command here in Hebrews 13. We, and that's also a challenge to the elder to have lives that are worthy of imitation. There's a bar that is higher. That's why not many should become teachers. Not many should become elders. The bar is higher, far higher than we recognize. None of us actually reach it, but the Lord will give the strength to those he calls. Stay in Hebrews 13. Probably in about 10 minutes we'll be back in it. So we come to the church. We are called to remember our leaders in the church, fellows... uh, by, by our pastors, by the pastors that are here, and also for the sake of just the fellowship that we have as fellow saints. Out, not thinking about church leadership, but the amount of one another's that are talked about in Scripture, how we are to treat one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, all these types of things that happen in a normal family are things that are supposed to happen in the church family. It's also important to be part of the church then because we hold each other accountable for sin and holiness. If you see a brother or sister who is going down the deep end, going down a troubling path, if they are part of the church, you have a familial responsibility to approach them. Not to put it off, not to, oh, I'll deal with this way the heck later, or not at all. That's, that's actually how you don't love them, is by not approaching. So remember, to love Jesus was to obey his commands, to do as he said. So if you see your brother or sister not doing that, you are not loving them by not approaching them. Does that make sense? Forgiveness of sin is what I'm getting at, really, with this. When we can speak to one another about godly things, about biblical things, we can have assurance that there is forgiveness for where we have gone wrong, for the sin that we commit. Uh, confessing sins to one another is spoken about in the New Testament as well. That is important because we can be assured of forgiveness of sin. Obviously, they're not the ones who ultimately forgive us our fault before God. But if he tells us that we are to confess our sins to one another and forgive one another, that is evidence that we are imitating the faith that is talked about here, imitating Jesus. Confess, forgive. I don't know if I would ever sense that I had forgiveness of my sin if I was not open to my elders and to my fellow saints about where I've fallen short. Would you sense that you have forgiveness for your sin if you stopped going to church and kept going down a sinful path? You would end up getting self-righteous about it. But what you would not get is a sense that I'm doing right by the Lord. You start separating yourself from the family of God, you'll get that uneasiness in your heart until you get hardened. Until the Lord gives you over, Romans 1. It's very important. This family talk, this is part of Christ's authority. He's given authority to the church. So I don't know that I would ever have forgiveness of sin if I didn't have fellow believers here who I was doing this walk of faith with because Christ delegates his authority to the church for this. And this is a big reason why Augustine would push often for people to become official members of the church too. Um, because then you are, are under somebody's authority. If you don't ever become a member of a church, you're not under anyone's official authority. It's not a very good place for a Christian to be. 
He wanted all of Hippo to be in the church, everyone, from the lowliest beggar to the highest ranking politician. Because being in the church and partaking of the means of grace, means of grace, preaching, sacraments, would cause the city of God to spread on earth. Now, the city of God is the title of his, the greatest book that he would write. It's massive. Uh, from ancient literature, the city of God after the Bible is the second largest book that we have from the ancient world. It is like 22 books put together. It's huge. It took him 15 years to write this thing. But the city of God was a type. That's a, he, you remember, he loves allegories. He loves symbolism. He loves metaphors and all of this. So the city of God is a type of heavenly kingdom, which Christians are a part, over against the city of man. And the city of man is the type of those who are in Satan's kingdom, the evil realm where the ungodly advance their kingdoms. The city of man can only go here on earth. Why, why do the heathens rage? Why do the nations rage? Why do the ungodly seem to just do thing after thing, chasing after new thing after new thing? more satisfaction for me because the city of man can only advance here in temporal terms. They don't have a, a greater reality to their kingdom. They're going to continually seek their own pleasure, their own, their own self-satisfaction and gratification because they're not going to get it in heaven. They're not going to get it anywhere else. In their minds, they get 70, 80 years here. I'm going to do it the way I want, live it the way I want, feel what I want to feel, be with who I want to be with. Treat people the way I want to treat them. It's all about me in the city of man. But in the city of God, it's a type of the heavenly city. We're not just spreading a physical kingdom on earth. We're actually doing what is copied in heaven. And the book Hebrews is amazing about how it talks about the things on earth, especially the church things, the temple, the altar, uh, the curtain. All these things are shadows and copies of what is in heaven. The pure form being there, which if you read the end of Revelation, it then comes back onto earth again. So we are part of the city of God, which is advancing on earth as the kingdom of heaven is coming. It is a much greater motivation and mission than what the pagans have. They don't get that. So that's a, that, it's an amazing book. I'm very, I'm trying to just simplify it as much as I can. But that was the most popular book that he wrote. It's really a great book. The primary weapon of the kingdom of the city of God is the preached word. The preached word. Now, speaking of preaching, let's move to the topic of preaching. That was a bit about his church life. I mentioned this in earlier sessions, but Augustine loved finding connections between scripture, typological meanings, spiritual meanings, analogies, allegories. He was a brilliant orator. His people would have expected this of him. They were an oratory culture as well. We aren't so much an oratory culture anymore, where we listen primarily. We see and are very digital. It's, we think often about what I see, that's what I believe, which one day I'll go, on, I'll go down that road. I don't have time today. But they were an oratory culture. They heard, and so they had to focus on the words and put their attention towards that. We look on devices, we have it on the television, we have it on radio, we see more things, we have the printed print more. The printing press wasn't a thing back then, so you didn't have many books, you'd have to hear the scripture be read. If you wanted to know scripture, you actually had to go to church and hear it, because you probably didn't own a Bible. 
I mentioned that before, but hearing was extremely, extremely important. And so if your communicator is able to make all these different types of connections, that was expected of the day. You needed to be a very gifted communicator back then. We don't, it's been said many times that this is not a good age of preaching. And that's, a, again, a primary topic for another day. But given the mediums by which we learn today, television, internet, cell phones, things like this, we aren't engaged in the same texts that a preacher used to be, that your teachers and professors used to be. Uh, you don't listen to things that came from the old world, you could say. Like, for instance, if you look at the literacy capabilities of a sixth grader today, and you compare that with a sixth grader 200 years ago, do you think it's even close? It's not even close, not even remotely. One test that somebody in a book, it's very valuable to read. In a book, I read this one challenge. Try to read a book, here's, there's a couple steps to this, a book written and published before World War II. Can you do that? A good example is Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. Can you read that and understand it and follow along with it? If you can do that, now go pre-World War I. Start reading some Spurgeon. Now try to go to the Reformation. Try to read Calvin. Try to read Luther. Can you understand it? Can you follow it? That's what they, they would use scripture and some of the best writing of the day to teach kids, to teach students. And they would have to listen for it because they didn't all have copies of these things necessarily. But the way our intellectual capabilities and our literacy rates, our ability to follow a point, it's, great. it's not at the same page that it used to be. We're more about 30-second sound bites and 10-second TikTok videos and 45-second Facebook videos and one tweet after the other about 10 million different topics, not focusing on one thing, getting to the heart and the truth of one thing. We get into 50,000 things just a little bit. Our knowledge can be as spread out as the ocean, but as deep as a puddle. Not so in Augustine's day. Not so in past days. He was a brilliant orator. He saw preaching as his most important work. His, he would preach four to five times per week. I mentioned before, this once a week church thing. That, that wasn't back in his day. He would preach four to five days in the week. Every Saturday, every Sunday, and then two or three more days during the week. And not that everybody would go all these days. Primarily, it would be the women and children who would go and the man would be working if the sermon was during the day. That's typically how it would go. Most people would go one or two, sometimes three times. Very few people could go to all of the sermons. But he would preach many times a week. He would preach over 300 sermons every single year. And how long he would preach for... His shortest sermons were about 15 minutes. He didn't do that often. His longest sermons were over two hours. He didn't do that too often either. But the average was about 45 minutes. He'd go for 45 minutes basically every single day. And most pastors today will go anywhere between 20 to 45. You have some who will go more, and that's a pretty big range there. But in 20 to 45 minutes, to prepare that sermon, most pastors take almost the entire week to prepare that sermon. It's not an easy thing to do, but again, we are in a day where we are not trained 
as well as we used to be. We're not used to interacting with texts as well as we used to be. It takes a lot longer to do less when it comes to literary work and communication. He would preach four to five different sermons every single week. He would finish preaching, go to his study, write the sermon for the next day. He'd get to work on it in the morning a little bit, and he'd preach it. Same thing the day after. Maybe he'd get, a day, he'd get an extra day of no preaching, and then again the next day. You didn't get a full week to write a sermon. You got one to two days. And that used to be normal. That was a bishop's job. So preaching was an incredibly important work, and it was a frequent work. Sometimes, there was one time uh, he was preaching out of Psalm 73, and he was just going on and on, and he didn't realize how long he had gone for. He said this as he gets to about the two-hour mark, a little over two hours of preaching on Psalm 73. He said, I have forgotten how long I have been speaking. I have finally come to the end of the psalm. And to judge by the smell of sweat, I gather that it has been a very long sermon. <laughs> but what can I do in the face of your enthusiasm? Your very violence disarms me. He, he's very poetic. Your very violence disarms me, and I hope that you will use it to conquer the kingdom of heaven. It's like, sometimes you guys just want me to keep on going. I see it in your faces. I can tell you're tracking with me, and I get excited, and I want to keep on talking about it. Oh, this room smells, oh, that is putrid. Uh, this has been a long sermon. I'm, okay, I'm going to cut it short. And what he did then is continue it the next day. Sometimes if he was preaching for an hour, hour and a half, and it gets hot there, he would say, I have a lot more to say about this. Come back tomorrow and you'll hear the rest of my ex exposition on this psalm or whatever. So that was something where, that you could do. I'm going to cut my sermon here because I'll finish it the next day. I preach four to five times a week anyway. Come back tomorrow. Interesting. Very, very different, isn't it? So he would preach as long as the text requires. No hard limit, as long as the text requires. He was a very loving pastor, and part of being a loving pastor and in his duty as being a preacher, he would never hesitate to apply scripture from the pulpit directly to societal issues and directly to sin in particular. He did this frequently. I couldn't imagine preaching four to five times a week and not doing this. Eventually, you're going to start applying things to the day as people are, the issues that people are actually living with day by day. For instance, this is a big one, sexuality. You'll remember that he had sexual misadventures as a young man. Uh, but then when he converted to Christ, he was celibate for the rest of his life. He never married after that. But he spoke a lot about sexuality. It's a major issue of every single generation. In that day, women, especially married women, were expected to be chaste, completely faithful to their husbands. Men, on the other hand, had a much looser rope. And it was almost expected that they would have maidens, concubines, along with their wives. The problem, this problem, was a repeat challenge for Augustine and for the men of his church. He likened the practice. The practice was that, you know how we have, uh, like people can come and clean your house or whatever. Well, in those days, if you were hired to be somebody's maiden or to clean the house, take care of the kids, you were essentially, that was essentially being 
sold to them in a way. It's not exactly slavery is what it, that was, but it was, I am under their strict authority. And if I want this paycheck, I'm signing the terms and conditions, you know? And so if you had a maiden in your home, in Roman culture, for the man, that gave him rights to her, even if he was married. This was very, very common. But Augustine likened that practice to prostitution. He said, that's prostitution. You're basically paying somebody to then get this benefit outside of the marriage union. The men, the men in his church, the men of Hippo, were very angry that he likened this to prostitution. They were not happy about that. Actually, here is a quote from around when he was talking about this. My woman is no prostitute. She is my concubine. Holy Bishop, you have called my concubine a prostitute. Do you really think that I would resort to a prostitute? I would never do that, nor would I touch a woman who belongs to someone else. The woman whom I keep is my own maid. Can I not do what I want in my own household? you imagine? So for them, this is in my home. You don't have the authority to tell me that I can't do this. This is part of culture. This is what we do. It's not prostitution. I know I'm not supposed to do prostitution, but it's not that. It's, it's in my own home. She belongs to me. Wow. That's what he had to deal with. This brings up the question of authority again. How much authority does Augustine have to preach to these men, to preach to these people? How would he respond? Well, he would preach at them straight out of the Bible and included with preaching out of the Bible about being uh, faithful to your wife, giving your wife her conjugal rights and her giving it to the husband and, and that not being joined. Because remember, Paul talks about not being joined to a prostitute. That's where he was getting it from. That's why they were so upset. Don't call this a prostitute because then I'm under the condemnation there. It's not that. And Augustine kept on saying, yes, it is. And so, biblically speaking, be faithful to your wife. But then he would also appeal to their masculine pride. And it was not easy for Augustine to be uh, celibate. Like That decision came very tough for him, but then God gave him the strength to do it. But he tried to appeal to masculine pride. It was hard to remain continent, to remain sexually faith, uh, pure, especially as a young man. That's hard. That's very difficult. And not just for men, but that's what, who we're talking about now. It's hard to remain continent. But what kind of man are you if you can't control yourself? What kind of man are you if you can't give that gift to your wife alone? You want to go give it to somebody else. You want to go think in your mind about other women. You want to watch pornography to make it more modern. What kind of man are you? That he would appeal to the masculine pride that you can't give it to your wife only. Or wife, that you're not giving it to your husband only. Who are you? So he would use the biblical text, and then he would appeal to your, to your inner pride. And I'll just leave it at that. He then turned his attention to the women. He said, women, you are being far too tolerant of, your, of what they are doing tolerant of your husband's failings. You're not protecting your own honor. He preached this from the pulpit in one of his sermons. I love this. Imagine someone doing this today. Let the women listen to me. Let them be jealous of their husbands. I do not want a Christian wife to be too tolerant. 
On the contrary, I want her to be a jealous wife. I say this with all sincerity. I order it. I command it. Your bishop commands it. And Christ commands it through me. Do not let your husbands make themselves guilty of unchastity. Appeal to the church against them. Be subject to them in everything else. But on this point, defend your cause. Can you imagine? Bring them up to church discipline. If they are failing, if they are falling, you don't just sit there and let it happen. If they are sinning against their Lord... You don't run away and abandon your marriage. Go to the elders. Plead your cause. Because it's not just for you. It's for them too. It's for their soul. There's no salvation outside the church. They are sinning against the church. Go to your elders. Appeal to the church against them. Wow, and I love this. I order it. I command it. He had an understanding of the authority of the pastor. So he would apply to personal issues. Personal can also be slash societal. Authority of the church and her pastors. If you uh, still have Hebrews 13 open, we read verse 7 earlier. Now go back down to verse 17 of chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Who are the leaders? Is this your prime minister? Is this your MP? No, these are the same leaders talked about earlier. These are your church leaders, those who preach to you the word of God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. They're keeping watch over your souls, if they are keeping watch over your souls. So, your pastor has legitimate authority. There is a legitimate authority that a pastor has where they can say things like Augustine said, I order it, I command it. Your bishop commands it. Your pastor commands it. There is that authority that Christ gives to his officers of the church. However, does that pastor have the right to tell you who you can marry? Does your pastor have the right to tell you what time to put your kids to bed? Does that pastor have the right to tell the government who to declare war on? No. He does not have unlimited authority in all the different spheres of life. Neither does the father, the head of the home, have the authority to tell the church how to preach out of the Bible, how to do discipline, tell the government how to... Ex, uh, deal with justice in this matter of somebody breaking the law. Don't have that authority. Neither does the government have the authority to tell the parent, this is how I want you to raise your child. This, these are the books I want you to read to them. Or to tell the church, this is when you're allowed to preach. This is what you have to do in worship. It's a breaking of the sphere. It's a breaking of the spheres of authority that the Lord's put in place. So, he has legitimate authority. Your pastor does, but... It is as it pertains to his sphere, to biblical pastoral matters. Augustine could speak that way because the Bible speaks that way. He cannot have this type of tone about what food you're feeding your kid. Doesn't have that authority. When you do family devotions in the day, he can command you to do it. He can command you to do family devotions, to read scripture to your children. He can command you to do that. 
and it would be right for him to. But he can't tell you when. He can't tell you how long. The Bible doesn't speak that way. So he has legitimate authority as it pertains to his sphere, which is on biblical matters, of matters that pertain to what the Bible talks about. And finally, when we start living the way that God designs things, it is a blessing to live as God designs. That's the last thing I want to say. A lot of us can fear, have fear about this authority thing because he might not know what he's doing or he might press his authority too far or I won't be impressed with what he tells me. And yet, it doesn't say only obey your leaders if you agree with them. It says obey your leaders if it has to do with a matter of faith. If they have biblical warrant for what they're talking about, that's actually a blessing. The wife fears sometimes to submit to her husband because he can be a doofus. He sometimes doesn't know what he's doing. She might be smarter than him. And yet, you are listening to God and obeying the Lord when you freely submit to your spouse. It's the way God designed it. There's a blessing there. It is a blessing to live as God designs. So that's a little bit about authority and how Augustine did that. I took all the time, and I'm not that sorry about it. <laughs> Let us pray and go to worship. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us here. Thank you that you have given us pastor, elders, teachers, deacons, those who can imitate the way of faith before us. I thank you that you work and speak through them. Would you help us to, be sub help us to obey them as your word tells us to in all matters that pertain to their authority? Let us love and support our leaders and also encourage them to do what's right. Help them to keep watch over us as ones who will have to give an account. That is a high calling. Let them be faithful in it. And now prepare our hearts for worship. Amen.